the door. It gave Jesus the opportunity to tell us this. Who then is my neighbor? Beginning with verse 30, Jesus replied and said, A certain man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him, and went off, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest was going down on that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, who was on a journey, came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion, and came to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two pennies or two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands. And he, the lawyer, said, the one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said to him, go and do the same. This parable tells us about love for other people. It tells us about neighborliness. But I want to take a little different approach to this scripture today and let it tell us of three kinds of people that are in any situation involving people. Three kinds of people that get involved in human situations. First of all, notice the traveler, the man who was beaten. I have called him a representative of those who are wounded in life. We need to realize that this traveler was foolhardy. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho as it fell off from the hill country there at Jerusalem toward the sea, fell, that terrain fell very rapidly. And the road that had been developed as a pathway of travel over those centuries prior to this time was a winding road that went near many rock formations in the hill country, a very lonely road. It was a dangerous road to travel because of the physical circumstances, but it was even more dangerous because very often in the rocks along this roadway from Jerusalem to Jericho, thieves would hide and lay in wait for lonely travelers. And so the man going from Jerusalem to Jericho was foolish. He was foolhardy. He really was about halfway responsible for his own predicament because he never should have been there alone. He was the typical naive and trusting soul that all of us are at some time when we have the inward attitude that the things that happen to some people will never happen to us. It'll never happen to me, he thought. It's just a few miles. I've got to go. I don't have anybody to travel with, but I'm going to go there anyway. All of us have been there at one time or another. There have been times in all of our lives when we have been the victims of our own foolishness and have put ourselves into situations that we shouldn't have been in. And when we have done it, there is usually someone there to take advantage of the situation and use it to wound us. 
This is the common plight of all men. You know, I've never known anybody that didn't want help when they had a problem. But I've known a lot of people who wanted help who were not willing to give it when the situation was reversed. Perhaps this man was one of those kind. We need to remember as we consider that some, in every human situation, there will be some who are wounded by it. We need to remember that anybody can be wounded. People who enjoy notoriety, and I use the word enjoy lightly, for it's been my privilege, and Joe in his ministry these last years has rubbed shoulders with a lot of people that are very well known. But you know, it has been my experience that people of notoriety are just people. And I've known a lot of people who wanted to be well-known or famous. They just don't realize what it costs. For a little bit of notoriety goes a long way in isolating a person from everybody around you. It just has a way of putting you off there alone, making you very lonely. And people who are envied for whatever the reason, people of notoriety, whether it involves their occupation or or in uh, just town politics or, or regional, state, national politics, uh, in the church or whatever. People like that sometimes are very, well, they are just openly, open game for anybody that wants to criticize. Nobody shoots at anyone that's on bottom. They always aim at the ones that are on top. But we need to remember that anyone can be wounded. And if there's somebody within your circle of acquaintance that has some notoriety, whatever their field of endeavor is, the best thing that you could ever possibly do for them would just be look past all of their notoriety and if God gives you the opportunity, just treat them like people and be a friend to them. Anybody can be wounded. Anybody can be wounded. I may have told you, I've never forgotten it since it was told me. My daddy never forgot it after it was told him when he was a young preacher. My dad was in the seminary, Jeff Ray, one of the beloved professors there, told him one day in class, along with others there, as he came into a class late from a counseling session with a student during those depression years who was having real problems. Before the classroom started, he said, boys, I want you to remember something today. He said, be nice to everybody, because everybody has trouble. Everybody has trouble. And it's the truth. It's the truth. First of all, there are those who are wounded. But then there is another category of people, as this parable illustrates it. There are those who wound. They are represented by the thief. Now remember that in this day, thievery was an honored profession. They tell us, the historians, the sociologists tell us that prostitution and thievery are the oldest time-honored professions in the world. Thievery was a well-honored society. The thief, there was honor among thieves in those days, believe it or not. It was a family business passed on from generation to generation. And yet, even though it was a part of society, as it still is, the thieves represent those who take indiscriminately that which they have no right to possess. So those who are wounded are represented by the thieves. And if, he, if, if they were the only ones who did the wounded, the wounding, 
the rest of us could just breathe easy. But notice the others in this story who did the wounding. There was the priest. The priest was the one who stood before God on behalf of man. Now there is no direct parallel today in our way of religion to the priest because with Jesus' death, when the way to God was opened wide so that any man could approach God for himself, every believer becomes a priest. Every believer becomes a priest. The New Testament teaches that every one of you have as much right and as much access to God as the pastor or anybody else whom you know. And so the priest, when Jesus told the story, was a very limited category of people. But today, as we tell it and apply it to our lives, it applies to every one of us. Now, what did the priest do to wound this man? Well, he did nothing. And the scriptures say in the book of James, to him who knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. Now, why did he do this? You see, the priest was coming from Jericho to Jerusalem, and he was on his way for holy service at the temple. And the Jews had their rituals and their laws that said if this man touched a Samaritan, he would be ritually unclean and disqualified for holy service at the temple for a period of days. What he did was consistent with his own viewpoint of his religion. But isn't it sad to see that the Jews' religion had come so far away from the mind of God that he felt it more important to be ritually clean to walk into the temple than he did to help a man who might have been dying. And is it not likewise tragic when we in God's name, find a way of putting our own religious activities ahead of human need. We become like he was, those who wound by doing nothing. He contributed to the problem, the plight, the wounds of the traveler. Then there was the Levite. The closest thing that relates to the Levite in our religious way is the deacon. The Levite was the servant in the temple and in the practice of religion. All of the men of the whole family of Levi were dedicated to holy service, not in the way that the priest did in the offering of sacrifices, but in the way of serving, doing labor, and keeping things fixed and operating. The whole family of Levi did that. This man perhaps was concerned about his own safety. He was not willing to risk that this traveler might be a decoy and that it might cost him something to help this man. It might even cost him his life or his possessions. For this man could have been left there as a decoy and the thieves could be lurking nearby to attack anybody who would be so foolhardy as to stop and help the wounded man. Perhaps his greatest sin was the fact that he cared more about himself than he did about a very real and a very urgent need that he saw around him. And I guess this parable could be written out of the newspaper four times a month. All of us have read and know stories of things that happen in cities where someone will be attacked or wounded or have a heart attack or or be hit by a car or whatever and people just walk by 
and look and keep on going. By their lack of action, they, like the priest and the thief, become those who wound the unfortunate. You see, the Levite had a poor concept of who a neighbor was. And I believe part of the point of this story was that the man who asked the question, Jesus saw, saw his heart, and Jesus was trying to minister to the questioner's need. And that questioner, likewise, probably, had a poor concept of who a neighbor is and of what his relationship is to be to others. The man asking the question probably was narrow and exclusive in his thinking, the way many of the Jews were, small-minded, looking out only for himself. Jesus, in another place, asked the question, when you love only those who love you, what have you accomplished? For even the heathen or the savages, Jesus said, do that. Even the savages return love to those who love them. And so Jesus changed the question that the man asked. Do you remember that the man asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? But look at verse 36 of this passage. And it says this, which one of these three proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands. The man said, who is my neighbor? Jesus said, whose neighbor are you? There's a lot of difference there, isn't it? Whose neighbor are you? There are many ways to, to wound other people. Sometimes people can be wounded by silence as we fail to speak when we all. More often than that, people are wounded by malicious use of information. Even truth can be misused and used in the wrong way. 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all guile and all hypocrisy and envy and all evil speaking, like newborn babes, let us desire the sincere or pure milk of the word that we may grow through it. That category of evil speakings is a broad category. And it involves not only things which are not true, but a malicious use of the truth. So in this situation, there was the one who was wounded, as there are in other situations. There were those who wounded him. But then notice, there are those who heal, those who are wounded, those who wound, and those who heal. Now, when Jesus told this story, it could have been a story that any Jew might have told. And when he mentioned the word Samaritan, he brought the villain into the plot as far as the Jews were concerned. And I can just see the Jewish wheels turning in, the, in their heads. When Jesus mentioned the word Samaritans, they just knew what he was going to say next was the Samaritan came along and finished him off. The Jews felt that strongly about Samaritans. You see, the Samaritans were half-breeds between the Jews who one thing they had preserved from their Old Testament heritage was a sense of racial purity. Now, I want to stop and stick in right here 
that you cannot build a case for modern racial purity from the Bible. It can't be done. The Bible is clear from page 1 to the end of the book in showing that racial purity for Israel served a specific purpose, and that was a pure race into which the Messiah was born. I'm not saying there are not many good reasons for racial purity. But I would say that everybody I have ever known that had a hang-up about racial purity didn't have a hang-up about anybody but black people. And that's prejudice. Anyway, that was free. They had maintained their idea about racial purity, and the Samaritans were half-breed Jews. They hated them. Worse than they hated the worst enemy, worse than they hated the Romans, they hated the Samaritans. And so when the Samaritan came into the plot, the Jews, as far as they were concerned, here came the villain. The word was used as a, to call somebody a bad name. In John 8, 48, when the Pharisees were mad at Jesus, they called him a Samaritan. Now this man was a merchant. He uh, evidently had good credit down at the local friendly Holiday Inn because he took the guy over there and bound up his wounds and took care of him and left him there and promised to pay the whole bill. And as unlikely as it seemed to those Jews, the Samaritan, the bad guy, became the hero. I remember one day in 1972, Retta and I were leaving here and going back to Houston, where we were living at that time. I was in a hurry to get out and had left Dell City without realizing that I did not have hardly any gas in my tank and I was sure having just gone through more that I could get to Norman without buying gas but on a miserable hot day we ran out of gas between Moore and Norman on the interstate well I let Retta sit in the car and got out and started trying to get somebody to stop and help us put up the hood and did all of that people just kept going by kept you know it really got disgusting here I was clean cut you know short hair the whole works woman in the car no traps but nobody stopped finally it attracted my attention as I got increasingly bored that coming south on the interstate the same way I had traveled was one huge smoke screen and I didn't know what it was I had no idea something was on fire or what and as it got closer and closer, it was about an old 1958 Pontiac, just belching smoke like a boiler, just pouring it out. Well, I thought to myself very quickly, I hope he doesn't stop. But he did. Well, I got into the car, and the man took me to Norman and brought me back. But that's not the, the part of the story I want you to remember because I that day thought about the parable of the Good Samaritan. The man who stopped was a black man who lives in northeast Oklahoma City. He was on his way in that car, which was all he had to travel in, to Houston, same place we were going, because his mother was dying. 
And he stopped, took me all the way down into Norman, and brought me all the way back with gasoline. And I thought that very day, as we drove on toward Houston, more subdued, prayerful for that man in his journey and for his mother, that we'd met the Good Samaritan. And I felt like that day Jesus told me, you go and do the same. And I had to stop and think. If I had seen that old thing disabled with a black man at the wheel, would I have stopped him? And I never would have suspected it. But he was the hero. Thank God that even from an unlikely source, there will be those who heal in human situations. We will not be judged by our doctrine, friends. We are going to be judged by the way we treat people as Christians. Some of the most ungodly, unattractive people I've ever known in my life where people are absolutely straight doctrinally but had hearts of stone. We're going to be judged by the way that we treat people. Jesus was saying in this parable that we ought to help people even if it's their own fault that they need help. Have you ever known anybody that just got gleeful pleasure out of telling somebody you made your bed, now you lie in it, if God had done that, we'd all go to hell. Jesus was saying, help somebody, even if it's their own fault. That's why God helped you. It was your fault, but God helped us anyway. Practical help is what Jesus is calling for. Not pity. Compassion breeds action. True love shows itself in our lives. And of course, Jesus was saying in this story that any man can be my neighbor. It's not a matter of who my neighbor is, but whose neighbor am I? This man gave not restrained help. He didn't do the least he could get by with, but he lavished attention and help on this man. I don't believe in the story of the Good Samaritan there is any thought of duty involved. The man wasn't acting out of duty. He was acting out of love. He really loved the man. He had compassion on him when he saw him. And Jesus said that we are to do just like he did to those around us. You know, something that disturbs me, it always has, is the fact that very often Christians do not even practice this kind of concern within the family of God, much less to a lost and dying world. There's a question to be dealt with tonight. Just lately, you've been involved in a human situation, every one of us. It very likely had these elements in it. Who were you? Were you wounded? Did you wound? Or did you heal? Join me for a moment of prayer. Lord Jesus, would you make of us healers 
forgive us when our own foolishness has made us vulnerable to being wounded. Forgive us when we have been those who wound and use us to touch the world with the same love that you have used to touch us. Amen. Before we pray, just a couple of things by way of announcement. Every week, I've reminded you before, we publish in the link the names and addresses of people who visit us. There are many of you who, as we begin next week with a structured, regular, continuing plan of visitation, will not be able to come when it is planned. But there's no reason why at your own pace, when you have the time, you cannot visit and show an interest in the people who show an interest in our church. Now, the visitation schedule, there's a note about it here in the link. Just a brief note. Will be a morning session and an evening session on the first and third Thursdays of each month. Some of our men will be visiting in the daytime because they work, or a couple of them will be involved in choir rehearsals on a Thursday night, and they will be visiting at other times. And so I believe that at 9.30 or at 7 o'clock, all of us with a minimum commitment of these two, two nights a month, will be able to do some good visiting. It doesn't take all night to make a good visit. In fact, a visit that goes too long is probably worse than no visit at all. For it is not your uh, instant wisdom or presence that does anybody good, but rather a friendly contact, showing Christian love and concern and gratitude that people have visited our church. I believe that the prospects God brings within these walls to visit are a stewardship for us. And I just know that if we don't uh, use good stewardship with respect to the people God brings to us, they're going to dry up and they'll go somewhere else and God will send the other people somewhere else if we don't do something about it. Uh, so we've been talking about this for some time. We've got it structured now. Our deacons will be leading out, just be up front in this visitation. But every member of the church, is urged to come. You will have a full breakdown of it in the link uh, next Wednesday night and in the vision between now and then. It will begin next Thursday, so you make your plans accordingly with that. You'll read uh, the other information in the link. There's some things there you need to be aware of, and tonight is the deadline for turning in a reservation for the boys who are going to the RA camp the week of June the 13th. We don't need any money or anything like that tonight, but we have got to know who's going. Alan Adams will be visible for a period of time following the service. You just find him and tell him uh, that your child is going uh, if you're going to let them go, if you want them to go to the camp this year. You can see the sick list on the left side, the front page of the link. Uh, most of these do not require any real explanation. Virgil Coffey is Nancy Kynard's father in Grand Prairie. We need to remember Brother Coffey. I, I believe that tomorrow he will go to Minnesota to the Mayo Clinic for some work. There are others there who are ill. Uh, the shut-in, the other prayer needs. Before we go by our pairs and threes and fours to pray, what would you mention in addition to these? 
as objects of prayer. Oliver.